one into the night. Jimmy Rollins is going to try for three. Here he comes. In the air, down the right field line. Way back there. On the RBI, hit by Mitchie Poole. Here's the throw to the plate. It's in the air. He is. Oh! The 0-2 swing and a miss. Struck him out. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Phillies Nation podcast. I'm your host, Ty Dobbert, coming back with another episode after a little two-week break for Thanksgiving. But last episode, we alluded to the time that we are in right now. There was an impending impending work stoppage. All the signs were pointing to that. The CBA was scheduled to expire, and it did. And we are in a bit of a limbo, in a work stoppage, specifically a lockout. and. We wanted to talk to talk to our listeners about what a lockout is, what is going on right now between Major League Baseball and the MLB Players Association. So we're going to get into that for you guys right now who may be wondering what's going on, why all your favorite baseball players' profile pictures haven't changed to blank headshots, just what's going on and why the Phillies haven't signed whatever free agent you are thinking of at this point. So I have Nathan Ackerman, my co-host, back on. Nathan, how are you doing? Are you ready to get into this? I'm fully ready to get in. You know, I, I think there are several other reasons as well why the Phillies haven't signed the free agent that everybody wants them to sign. So that's on top of all the lockout stuff. But yeah, it feels like we're in this. It's such a weird state. It was like we were thinking um, we, we sort of talked about it in last week's pod with Matt Gelb that, you know, we were we were thinking it might end in this like fiery ball of flames leading up to the first. And then it would just like be this dead period. And it was essentially just, okay, we're going to a lockout. Yeah. Sounds like it. Cool. And then it started. Uh, so it was, but you know, obviously the few days leading up to that were, I guess the fiery ball of flames in terms of free agent signings and things like that. So that was exciting, but now it feels like everything just, I mean, it just stopped so abruptly and now we're in this, like what's going on and nobody really knows. And when does this end? So I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, exactly. And to get into it, to explain kind of the ins and outs of what's going on, to explain everything that has to do with this work stoppage, we decided to invite a couple guests on the pod today. They were thankfully open to coming on. This is Bobby Wagner and Alex Baisley from the Tipping Pitches podcast. They do a baseball podcast. They talk about labor. They talk about baseball culture stuff. So this is kind of their cup of tea. Bobby, Alex, thanks for coming on. How are you guys doing? Good. Thanks for having us. It's it's music to our ears to be called for labor and culture to be our cup of tea. <laughs> you also made our our job easier because most most people ask us how we define our podcast, and we have a we have a tough time doing that anyway. So you kind of hit the nail on the head. Right <laughs> it's like this little game of hot potato that Alex and I play, where we pass it back and forth as to who actually has to describe to new listeners what the podcast is actually about because most of the time we just make fun of bad columns and make fun of Alex Rodriguez and talk about Taylor Swift's new music but also with like a lot of baseball labor stuff thrown in there <laughs> yeah so I guess that's true if you want to if you want to get the labor stuff if the culture stuff tune into their podcast but if you want to hear a rod at the end of their episode talk about you know why tipping pitches is the best you have to tune in as well there's a lot of lot of different things to to be had in a tipping pitches episode but yeah like the the reason we brought you on like we mentioned talk about what's going on in major league baseball i guess in short how would you guys as people who 
have talked talked about these things. Like you, you're not first hitting on the labor discussions on December first when the CBA is uh, it's expired. You, you're talking about these labor problems into in the last season when they had to figure out what was going to happen in 2020 when it was shut down and all the you know everything that went down with that. Just as people who focus on labor and baseball. How would you describe what's going on right now? What is a lockout? What's going on with Major League Baseball and the players? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I was remarking to Alex yesterday um, how long we've been talking about this on the show is basically like since we started doing the show, this has been a topic and then it became kind of the main focus in the last 18 months or two years or so. And yet it still feels weird to be in this moment, as I'm sure it feels weird for all baseball fans, no matter how much you're paying attention to labor. It feels weird to see MLB strip everything off MLB.com that was like about players and take all down their images, as you alluded to, Ty. Um, yeah, so I mean, h- how we got here is a, is a much longer question. So I'll leave that for a second. What's actually happening right now is the collective bargaining agreement, which is the legal document that governs how the MLB union, the MLB Players Association, and Major League Baseball, which is the management side, the company side um, of the, you know, uh, of the work agreement here. Um, their CBA has expired. And that means that they, that either side can then execute a work stoppage. So the players could then go on strike now although it wouldn't really mean anything, which is why they didn't vote to go on strike because they're not actually playing games. They wouldn't be withholding their labor because there's no games going on for them not to play or you know mandatory practices for them to not show up to. Um, and then from the owner side, it's, it's what's called a lockout, which is you file this paperwork and basically says, anybody who's in this union that we are negotiating with that is governed by this CBA, they can't come to work. They can't interact with us. They can't show up to the facilities. They can't, we, we can't give them a new contract. We can't replace Hector Neris because with a new reliever on the market, because the, the, whoever would be in this contract would be in a member as a member of the MLB players association. Um, and so that, that is where we're at right now. The owners have chosen to completely lock out the players until negotiations are finished. And, and it's worth noting that this is not, you know, it's a it's a procedural move, but it's not a a given that a lockout was going to happen. I mean, and that's the way it was kind of talked about over the you know the past few months is that we did kind of know this is coming, but this is an active step that management has to take, right? It's a it's a negotiating tool to force the players to the table, just like a strike is a negotiating tool to force owners to the table, right? So this is meant to put a little bit of pressure on players to say, hey, you cannot work until we sit down and hammer out an agreement. And obviously over the next couple months, that may not mean a lot because Bobby, as you mentioned, there are, there are no games right now. There are no practices at the moment. But when January rolls around, February rolls around, if there's no agreement, all of a sudden, the, the season starts to uh, be put in a little bit of jeopardy, right? Um, neither the players nor the owners want to lose games because that means a loss of revenue. So this is, this is the owners saying, hey, we slightly have the upper hand right now. We'd like to sit down with you and, 
and try and see what we can we can make happen. And obviously, there's a there's a lot at stake right now, and they're and they're really far apart on quite a few key issues, which is why they've they've chosen to to do this as the CBA has expired. Yeah, Alex is right to point out that they could still they don't need a new CBA. Like, but in under the National Labor Relations Act, you can continue with the terms of the old CBA after it's expired as long as you want. But if there is no CBA, active CBA, then that leaves it open for the players to strike in the middle of the season next year, the way that they did in 1994 or 1995. And the owners really, really, really don't want that because that is that is when they've lost all their leverage. If they're halfway through the season, the owners are counting on this TV revenue to come in and then the players just walk away. That's why you're seeing a lockout right now. It's setting up this time, this clock over the next three months. The owner saying, we have to get this done over the next three months. That's something I'm kind of glad you hit on that. I I think kind of the, because of how it's been talked about that for so long, it's like, oh, there's going to be a lockout. I think people kind of get this idea in their mind that when a pro sports CBA expires, then it's just automatically a lockout. But no, they can still go on just like they did in 1994 um, and, and leave it set up for there to be a strike. I'm not exactly sure why they didn't do a lockout in 1994. In hindsight, I, I guess it seemed pretty obvious that that would happen if, if they weren't going to give into the salary cap that the owners wanted. But that, that's why they're, like you mentioned, why they're doing it right now. I think, I think, I think Manfred too cited 1994 as a reason for the 2021 lockout. He was like, we saw what happened back then and we want to avoid that. So yeah, Ty, you're right. In hindsight, it doesn't really make much sense, but I think that that in and of it's like that, you know, the fact that that happened and how terrible that was for the sport. Um, that's a big reason why it's happening now, just because they want to avoid that again. Yeah, local man who had his lunch taken does not want his lunch taken again. <laughs> they <laughs> yeah, don't that... want that that PR mess and they don't want to be negotiating during the season. So they're going to say, let's try to get this done during the offseason. Now it comes to whether or not they will actually be flexible on some of these proposals that they put across. Like Alex mentioned, they're very far on, on a, a few key things, a few key economic things too. You, you mentioned that they're really far apart on some of the issues. What, what are some of these things that are being negotiated? I'm sure there are a ton of little things like, you know, is there a DH coming? Is there a runner on second base and extra innings? But then there's also huge things like arbitration and free agency. Like just what are some of the things that are being discussed? Yeah, definitely. So players really the, the big overarching thing that players want is an economic system that, tilts things back in favor of the players, right? They want to, especially when it comes to younger players who are just coming up, that it's it's pretty widely known right now that young players don't make a lot of money. And over the last couple of decades, you have seen that a larger and larger share of the talent in the league comes from these young players, players who are on rookie contracts, players who are in their arbitration years are are performing at a much higher level than they are currently getting compensated for. So players really want to address that, right? They want to bump up uh, minimum salary. They, they want to, uh, you know, decrease service time manipulation and uh, quicken the, the time it takes for a player to reach arbitration, uh, quicken the time it takes for players to reach free agency. They want 
a player to get there after five years instead of six years, right? And it's really just to say, hey, we want to we want to give ourselves the chance to actually see what a fair market would give us, rather than being locked in for six years in what is potentially the prime of our careers, right? For for decades, players were compensated on the back half of their careers, basically to make up for the fact that they were not making making money for those first five, six, seven years of their careers. And teams have caught up to that, right? And said, I'm not going to give Albert Pujols a, you know, a $200 million contract when he's past his prime. There's no, there's no reason for me to do that anymore. So that's really what's at stake on the on the players' side is is really changing the the way that money is being tossed around. And some of those key issues really are are what the owners are refusing to meet them on. They're really hesitant about moving up the time that it takes to get to free agency, moving up the time that it takes to to get to arbitration. These are something that the the owners are really steadfast against letting happen because obviously it means having to pay players what they're worth a year quicker, two years quicker, which I mean, I don't think I need to say why the billionaire owners aren't interested in doing that, but you know, it's kind of surprising to some people, right? At least to us, we're saying, Hey, these are billionaires. Why, why can they not afford to pay Manny Machado what he's actually worth in arbitration? Right. What whoever the, the young star is, Ronald Acuna, Wander Franco. So so the, the players are are asking for a lot here. And it's really this is what the owners are are pushing back against. Bobby, you wanna pick me yeah. up? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and I think something that it's important to understand in this equation is that owners have <laughs> revenues of baseball have been increasing dramatically over the last 20 years. And it hasn't really changed the way that players get paid. It's changed the amounts of the contracts. It's changed the average annual value, but it has not changed the system that pays these players. We still have zero through three years, you're paid the league minimum. Three through six years, you go through salary arbitration, which is a kind of suppressed version of free agency. You don't get the actual free market. You know you have to stay with your team and you have to go through this very convoluted process which we just did an entire episode about on our show. If you want to understand what salary arbitration is, we talked to Jerry Blevins who actually won his salary arbitration case against the Washington nationals. But, you know, like Alex said, like the younger players want to get compensated like their production is because they don't know if they're going to get a contract after they turn 30. You know, if you're not, we just saw a ton of money thrown around in free agency last week. And you saw a lot of owners and you saw the commissioner of baseball saying, look how much money was just given out in free agency, right? What he doesn't want you to know is that still the payrolls are in line to be less than they were two years ago or last year as well. So average spending is going down and revenues are continuing to go up because of these TV deals. Um, and so, you know, when we when we look at what the owners want, um, and we allude to the fact that they're so far apart. Something that owners want is expanded playoffs. And that, of course, affects the fans. It, it affects the players. We all know that the owners want that because the TV contracts for playoffs are massive. Um, they're exorbitant. And the owners get a large share of that pie. So the, the players know that they can trade some of these things that they want, like, get, like players getting to free agency earlier, getting to their arbitration years earlier. 
in exchange for that. It's just a matter of how much the owners are willing to give in exchange for that thing that they really want. To, to jump back to the topic about younger players and how the system is kind of stacked against them when it, when it, you know, when we talk about not reaching free agency until you've already been in the league for six years and making close to the league minimum and the whole salary arbitration process. So on your last episode, you guys were talking about Wander Franco and that extension that he just signed with the Rays. And your conclusion, it seemed, was that, which I think is, is, is accurate, which is that it's not, it wasn't bad. Like it wasn't a bad idea for him to sign the contract because, you know, it's 11 years, however many years it was, it's some stability, you know, money that he's going to get for sure now, but the system is sort of responsible for making him sign a contract that probably, you know, doesn't give him what he's worth, at least on the open market, or at least what he should be making. And I'm kind of curious why, like, why would he feel, why would guys like that feel, you know, pressured to sign an extension like that when the system in theory is going to change in a way that theoretically is going to be better for the players? Why not wait until you have that system in place so that you can take advantage of your worth and get, you know, more like your market value might suggest that you can get? Why would they sign that now when the system is, as it was stacked against them. And as it, 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 it may still be that in the future, cause it's probably not going to be perfect for all sides, but like, why not just wait it out? And what's the, I, I guess, what's the incentive towards signing that deal earlier when you could wait until theoretically you've worked out a better system that, you know, could lead to guys like that getting more money and getting more appropriately paid as far as what they're worth. Yeah. I mean, so Wanda Franco is an interesting example. Um, Sometimes when players are so good that they can command that like that big of a total value of the contract, they want to just say, let's lock it in because it's unlikely that the CBA will be like, you know, Wander Franco can hit free agency next year or like two years from now or even three years from now. Like what we're talking about is knocking off one year off service time control or, you know, in a perfect world, we'd knocked maybe two or three years off service time control, but it's unlikely that that will happen without a longer work stoppage, which I think neither side is really invested in doing this time around. They're going to kick the can down the road to six years from now. And maybe six years from now, we could do a podcast together about how we're going to miss the entire 2028 season because of the work stoppage. But it's always a perpetual thing that they're fighting back and forth for trying to take a little bit of territory from each other. But, you know, for Wanda Franco, he made less than a million dollars last year and he'll make less than a million dollars next year. And he would yeah. make less than a million dollars the year after that. And then he would make, and then after that, then he would make eight. And then after the year after that, he'd make 15. And then the year after that, he'd make maximum 30. So you're talking about giving a guy three years to potentially have a career ending injury with no guaranteed long-term contract for a guy who doesn't, who is not coming from a lot of money and who knows that he has the belief of the club to give him a long-term extension right now. Um, And so, you know, if your career ends when you're 22 and you've made, you know, $2.1 million or whatever from your, from the minimum contract that you were getting in your zero through three years, your pre-arbitration years, $2.1 million is not really enough to carry you through the rest of your life and also support your entire family until, you know, until your retirement age. 
So he guarantees himself the whatever it was, I think 180 something million um, come rain or come shine. Now it's unfortunate that the system is set up that he would have only gotten 2.1 in the other case. Like it's so extreme from one side to the other side, but this is kind of an example of what, of what the players are talking about that, that a guy like Wander Franco, who is as good as he is, who is a top 20 player in baseball. The second he gets called up, first of all, that it took him so long to get called up and his his service time wasn't even manipulated in, in the same way that we've seen some guys like Chris Bryant's service time be manipulated, where the Cubs blatantly called him up the day after, you know, they were going to gain another an extra year of his service time. And he filed a grievance for it. And he still ended up losing Michael um, Franco, Michael Franco too, Philly's third baseman, 2015, same year. Exactly. And it, it's basically standard practice for every team to do this. And it, to the point where like, we're celebrating when teams don't do this, which it's literally written into the CBA that you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to manipulate service time for the purposes of gaining an extra year. Um, you can only do it for legitimate baseball reasons. And these teams just say, well, he's working on his defense. So a lot of this stuff has contributed to the frustrations on the player side, the way the teams have gone about things like service time, the way the teams have gone about holding such a hard line in arbitration. Um, but that, I, I guess that that would be why someone like Wander Franco would sign. In an ideal world, we'd love for him to hold out and get every single dollar from the race, even though they wouldn't give it for every single dollar from another team. Um, but right. but we're just not in that world. And he has his own considerations to, to think about. Right. So when they sign a new CBA, say it's end of January, what you're saying is that the terms of that agreement won't be so much better for the players that if he were to sign the extension then, because I think in either way, it, it's not smart to, you know, play out the first five years and then go to free agency when he's what, 27, 28 hour old, you might be then. But when, the, if, if you were to sign that new contract in January, early February, whenever, it wouldn't be so much more favorable for the players that it's like, he's making an extra, you know, tens of millions of dollars. It's just, you know, it'll probably still be stacked against him in January too. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's important to note that some of the things that the players are asking for, at least in the balance of baseball's kind of labor economic landscape are somewhat radical. They're making some pretty aggressive asks because over the last few CBA negotiations in the last couple decades, owners have kind of increased their leverage in the financial area. So, you know, and, and that's why I, th I think things seem really kind of acrimonious in the public right now. You have Tony Clark and Rob Manfred really, um, you know, being kind of uh, displaying this sort of bombast about how the other side is being incredibly unreasonable. Right. And and to an extent, I mean, they are really far apart on a lot of these key issues. If we've as we've said, I I don't expect the CBA that does eventually get negotiated to tip the scales in favor of the players that remarkably they're going to get some wins probably. I, otherwise, why are they agreeing to this CBA? <laughs> they won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, th the CBA is not going to look radically different from the one that exists right now. You might get marginal changes to ways the team can or, or can't manipulate service time. You may see slight changes to the arbitration system. Um, places like the, the luxury tax and minimum salary are places that the owners are actually willing to give a little bit. Those are places that the, the management side has actually been willing to 
to meet with. Whereas stuff like uh, service time and free agency and arbitration, the owners haven't even been that interested in countering these yeah. proposals. They so, have what we call yeah. in the labor world philosophical differences. So it's not just differences in ter- differences in opinion or differences about, uh, you know, the ma- the minimum salary is seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. Well, we want the minimum salary to be one point one million dollars, and then you meet in the middle. Philosophical differences means the owners don't believe the system should be changed at all, and the players do. And it's very hard to convince a group of 30 billionaires to agree on one thing when they are starkly against it. And similarly, on the other side, it's very hard to get a group of 1,200 players to change their mind about something. So philosophical differences can be what lead to a thing like a lockout. I want to add really quickly, while we're talking about Wander Franco, and while when you ask why he would sign it before the lockout, I think you're right. I think the the extension probably would have been on the table come January, come February when they agree on the new CBA, but there's just no guarantee. You just never know when the Tampa Bay Rays are going to pull that offer and say, actually, we want to we want to fight you tooth and nail through arbitration. Or when you get to arbitration, we want to trade you. Um, and he might not want that. His camp might not want that. The two sides were in a line, in alignment right now. And you don't, don't know if that's going to be the case after the fact. Like the Tampa Bay Rays... They run a payroll of $60 million. And if they just decide they want to allocate those resources to somewhere else, or if they want to run a payroll of $80 million or whatever, but they're not going to go much over that. And despite the fact that they get $60 billion in national TV money and $85 million in regional TV money. Um, and so if they decide that they want to move on from Wander Franco in three years and not give him a 12-year extension, then I don't know. You, you don't want to deal with that uncertainty that the that the intervening three-month period could cause. Yeah, so, you know, kind of hitting on all those points there about baseball's economic system and just the, the union really pushing for changes to with how young players are paid and treated. Um, how is that? How is that kind of different than maybe things used to be in their nego- in their negotiations it kind of feels like in the past that if the top players were making were getting big salaries and big contracts then things were good in the eyes of the players association and now you know you have the league or different reporters or writers pointing to the fact that you know Max Scherzer just got paid that he's getting paid over 40 million dollars a year like oh how could how could things be be wrong for the players you have these players getting big contracts right before the the lockout why why is that maybe different now and not what the players are focused on and how is that a little bit of a of a shift kind of you know philosophically like you mentioned it's it's really important to to note that things have always been good for MLB stars they have always gotten paid throughout history because teams are happy to fork over however much, if you want to have Max Scherzer on your team, you're going to fork over whatever it takes to get him on your team, right? Things start to look a little different when you're talking about the Todd Frazier's of the world, right? Baseball's quote unquote middle class. Those are the ones who have seen their, uh, their share declining in in recent years, because 
I, who even knows why? Because teams realize that they, they, again, they don't have to sign them to these contracts that are supposed to be retroactively making up for value that they've already provided. So they have seen their share uh, go downwards. As I said earlier, the, the youngest players who are the, the ones who are making up the a, a vast majority of the value in the league are also the ones who are getting paid uh, on minimum contracts. And so I think that the MLB PA is kind of starting to wake up to the fact that there's a good segment of their union membership that is really unhappy with the way that contracts are structured, right? That, you know, looks at the landscape of signings and say, yeah, you know, maybe there, there have been billions of dollars in signings, but only a handful of teams have actually increase their payrolls from last year, right? A vast majority of teams have seen their payrolls actually decrease from where they were last year and from last year where they were the year before. So that's really where the issue comes down to is that the stars have always gotten paid. Bryce Harper and, and Manny Machado and the like are, are always going to be, are going to be fine. You know, something that we've seen in the last Five years, we'll say. So this is something that cropped up right when the last CBA was signed, which was um, 2015, I believe. Yeah, six-year terms. This is 2021. What year are we in, guys? Um, is that anti-competitive behavior that we've seen, which hurts fans, but it also hurts players because, you know, Alex brought up Todd Frazier. I think a guy that I always think of that I first really started to realize how much of a problem this was uh, was Mike Moustakis, actually. because mm -hmm. So we used to talk about... Um, the, the agreement used to be that you would provide all this value to your club through those first six years, like Alex has mentioned. You're right around 30, probably, based on the time that you got called up, or you're 23, 24, 25, whatever. You're 30, 31, maybe 32 if you were a little bit of a late bloomer. And then you'd get like a good four-year... $50 million deal or four a year, depending on when you're actually signing it, you know, and how good you actually are for a year, $80 million deal or four a year, $60 million deal. But it doesn't really matter. That contract is not there for the Mike Moustakis of the world anymore. The utility guy who got called up a little later, like he signed in one year deals and he was a pretty good player when he was signing those one year deals because teams don't want to pay for past performance anymore. But the players are like, Hey, you forced us to ask for payment for past performance because when we were currently performing our best, you have this whole weird system that we're not allowed to ask for more money. So there is that philosophical difference that they're bumping up against that I think that now the players are starting to realize like this is not just a, a labor issue in itself. This is not just a like players are not getting compensated enough money issue. It's coming from something that is like, teams don't want to be as competitive as they can be anymore. Like you have way more teams tanking. You have way more teams playing the middle of the road, keeping their payroll down, hoping that they sneak into the playoffs. And I think that's something that we've maybe underrated a little bit, even in this conversation is play the MLBPA wants the teams to try harder to win. And, you know, something that fan, all fans can really relate to is their team, not trying that hard to win. And, that ultimately ends up being a labor issue when you talk about it in the context through the lens of the CBA because you have to spend to win. You have to spend to keep your good team together. 
not just blow it up. And you actually can turn your team around from raising your payroll. You know, we talk about money doesn't buy a good team. You actually have to sign the right players, right? Like giving $30 million a year to a fourth outfielder doesn't buy a good team, but giving $30 million a year to Bryce Harper makes your team a lot better. So it's all a matter of uh, these different forces that we've seen crop up over the last six years, many of them influenced by sabermetrics and teams have taken that and really run with it in terms of not wanting to give out free agency deals to guys who are after 30. Like they've, they've gotten wise to that and they've used it to their economic advantage. That feels to me like one of the toughest fights in this whole CBA thing. We, we've talked about the luxury tax ties so many times on this year podcast, but I, for one, don't envy the person who's trying to convince a team like the Orioles to go out and spend a bunch of money because sure you can sign Carlos Correa and he's going to make your team a lot better. Great. Now you don't win 52 games. Maybe you win 60 if he has a really good season. So how do you think that gets fixed? How do you convince the, you know, bottom, you could say it's a third, but if you're talking about teams who, you know, could be good, who are maybe one guy from being really good, but don't want to pay the tax. How do you, but, but especially the, the teams in that lower tier, like the Orioles, like the, well, I guess not the Rangers anymore at this point, but the Pirates, teams like that, that just, if, if they sign two, two, the two best free agents on the market, they're still going to be pretty bad. How do you tell them that it's actually, or how do you, you know, convince them to actually pay players? But, but, so, okay, so I'm glad you brought up the Rangers really quickly, and then I'll let you go, Alex, because you, you could sign the five best free agents in the market and still be below MLB average payroll if you're the Orioles. Their payroll yeah. is currently at $40 million. So they yeah. could reasonably add $100 million of payroll. That's like, that's three Carlos Correas and then some, you know, and then a reliever. You know what I mean? So like, we're talking about drastic margins here, drastic yeah. margins on the bottom end there. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to suggest that no team can ever break it down and build it back up. Right. I just think that in the interim, you don't need to put such a bad product on the field. You don't need to right. not, you don't need to refuse to pay anybody more than a one-year deal and or more than a minimum contract, which is what the Orioles have been doing and what, you know, teams like the Cubs and Astros popularized. They made it in vote. Yeah. And just to be very, very clear, super quick, it isn't that the teams that are paying $40 million don't have the capacity to pay $210 million. That money is there. They're just not spending it. Yeah. Teams are always going to go through cycles of being competitive and, and not, right? That's the nature of the sport. Sometimes you literally do not have the players in your system to put a good team on the field, right? You're not going to have 30 teams win 90 games a year, mathematically. <laughs> Sorry, it's not going to happen, much as I would love to see that happen. So, you know, Bobby, like you said, there, I think there's not an expectation necessarily that every team needs to try and be there, The you know, win the division every single year. But right now, there's not just not a ton of incentive to win, but there are actual incentives for not spending that money, right? If you tr uh, churn out a hundred loss season, you're going to have great draft picks. If you don't put a ton of money on the field or cry poor, 
well, great. It's okay because the the bigger teams will subsidize your uh, your payroll, right? You're gonna you cash get... that revenue sharing check, baby. It, exactly, and that's these are issues that the players want to address. They want to decrease the amount of money that's being moved around via revenue sharing because it rewards teams for running out a smaller payroll for for claiming that they exist in a quote unquote smaller market, which is a the the idea of the small market is a myth, right? A market is whatever you make it to be. If you have two hundred fifty million dollars, you're going to be the biggest market in the league. If you, I, you know, I don't care if you're in Topeka, Kansas, right? If you are actually uh, investing in a team, uh, as the old saying goes, people will come. That's yeah. that's simply how it works. So they want to decrease the amount of money that's moving around via revenue sharing, and they want to lessen the rewards that teams get through the draft. They actually want to incorporate, um, you know, if you're a if you're a small market team or a small budget team that managed to be successful in the past year, despite your market, despite your payroll, you can get rewarded in the draft you actually might get a compensation pick because we want the not good teams with quote unquote not much money to still try at the yeah. end of the day you don't want to see these sell-offs like a team like the oakland days have had as much as it breaks my heart right this this is a team that won uh, upwards of 85 games last year and have an incredibly talented core that it's almost a given they're going to sell off this year. John Fisher yeah. is worth $4 billion. Why? Why are they getting rid of these players? You know? and, the, and, and that's actually a good example too, Alex. The A's, it's, like, it's not even just that the mediocre teams are not trying to get good. It's that the good teams are trying to get mediocre via spending less, like via mm-hmm. penny pinching. Like Cleveland, for example. That team damn near won a World Series in 2016. And what did they do after that? They proceeded to not keep that core around. You know who is still good at baseball? Francisco Lindor, despite his down start to 2020. Like, why isn't he on Cleveland? He said that he would have loved to stay there for his whole career. They just pretended like they did not have the money to sign him. And I say pretend because they did have the money to sign him. It's not like, you know, Cleveland's TV deal is only paying them $10 million per year. Like they're making $50 million per year from their TV deal and then $60 million from the national deal and then cashing revenue sharing checks. And that's before you sell a single ticket, a single hot dog, a single jersey, a single anything else. Like they're just cashing $110 million year over year, whether whether they put us four out there or whether they put Francisco Lindor out there. I wanted to wanted to touch a little bit on the tanking on rewarding teams with draft picks and everything um, for our listeners. Obviously we're the Phillies nation podcast. People are most familiar with the Philly with Philadelphia teams. You know, you think of the process 76ers where they tanked and they ended up with Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. Uh, we don't have to get into like the actual dynamics of that right now, but in, right, in the 30 NBA, minutes on where Ben Simmons is going to land. <laughs> That's what we need. Four <laughs> more people talking about Ben Simmons destinations. In, <laughs> But in the NBA, there's a because of how they're set up, there's a clear incentive to tank to the top of the draft because of how superstars make your team almost like instant contenders if you have one of the very top or like two superstars. And the NFL, you think of the end of last season for the Eagles, 
Um, they let's call it how it is. They punted on the last game so that they could move up in the draft and they ended up with Devontae Smith. He's their best receiver. Um, in baseball, the Phillies, after thinking they could keep their core around for longer than they could after 2011, around 2015, they decided, all right, we got to we got to start getting rid of these players, the the Rollins, the the Rollins, the Udleys of the world. They traded them, most of them to the Dodgers, actually. Uh, <laughs> they traded a ton of them to the Dodgers, but they, they tore it down because they realized they weren't going to win. And their their model it seemed to almost be modeled after, like you like you guys mentioned, the Astros and the Cubs, where they just absolutely tear it down. Um, claiming, I guess the idea is if you tear it down, they could they could build up the draft picks near the top of the draft, and also save enough money that they can go sign some big free agents when they get good. Well, here's the thing: the the Phillies tanked, and then. They got the draft picks and then they missed on basically all of them at the top of the draft. Mickey Moniak, number one overall pick, Adam Hazley, a top pick. Um, Cornelius Randolph, he was a top pick. He was more near the middle of the first round. But in baseball, like these top picks aren't always as impactful as other sports. And they're not going to immediately turn you into a contender like they can in the NFL or in the NBA. And then at the same time, sure, the Phillies saved money when they weren't spending on any, any players in 2016, 2017, and then they do go sign Bryce Harper after the 2018 season, but they still haven't eclipsed the luxury tax tax threshold at this point. And really not, it's not like their money is skyrocketed kind of in, you know, the same way that it went down in those years. Like tanking is just in baseball. It's not as much of a reward for the teams that are rebuilding as, as it is in other sports. It's more just excuse like when they're not going to be good it's go it's to save a lot on payroll it, it disguised as a way to get good again but here's the the, the owner john middleton doesn't want you to realize that though john middleton wants you to buy his vision of hope when in three years this beautiful core that we've assembled that's very cheap we can supplement it with all of these great players well they they didn't do that you know like like you said they're not going bumping up against the luxury tax they're they want to stay closer in the you know 150 to 200 range where they can kind of keep some of that like top end profit when they're to be to be fair to them they've been close before last year after 2020 they were closer to around 190 i think but they've they've been close to the luxury tax but i think what phillies fans have clamored for is you know, they're able to identify, especially after 2019, when they get Harper and Rio Muto and it's a disappointing season, people are pressuring them to go over the luxury tax. And it's something they've not been willing to do. Yeah, I, I mean, to be fair to the Phillies, they actually have spent on good free agent players. Like the fact that they keep Rio Muto around after executing the trade, the fact that they brought in Bryce Harper for a contract that his own team was not willing to meet within that division. And those are all like, those are all positive signs. Zach Wheeler. Zach, yeah. Zach, Wheeler. Yeah. Zach Wheeler. Exactly. Can't Take forget, can't from, forget uh, Arietta and Carlos Santana in one offseason. <laughs> I just blacked out the Zach Wheeler thing out of my mind because I'm a Mets fan. Maybe anybody who's made it this far in the podcast is going to like tune out now. Cause I said, I'm a Mets fan, but um, yeah, they've actually done a, a good job of spending, you know, like, but it just goes to show you that, keeping payroll down necessarily and and losing all of these games just to get these draft picks doesn't it's not a guaranteed way to get 
good players or to get good. So then when the next owner tells you that that's what they're doing to get good again, you have to take that with a grain of salt because it, does that actually mean your, your team is going to get good? I don't really know. Would the Phillies be better off if they had run a upper middle payroll this whole time and developed a team, a core of good ish players. Like maybe they don't have Aaron Nola and Alec Bohm, but maybe they do have Marcus Simeon and, you know, a couple of these guys who were available for middle, you know, middling contracts before Marcus Simeon signed his huge contract, but a couple of these guys who other teams did not want to sign would the Phillies be better off if they had five of those guys instead of the two draft picks who actually made it to MLB? I don't know. It's an interesting question, but um, owners don't really care to find out because they don't want to spend the money in in the short term. On the draft note, what what do you guys think about the prospect of a draft lottery? It's one of the things that been that's been sort of you know tossed out, uh, sort of an NBA style kind of thing where tanking isn't directly you know, rewarded with the top draft pick. Do you think that's going to, is that a thing that you think is going to, you know, gain some steam in these next, uh, you know, talks and whenever they might happen over the lockout? It's possible. I know it's slightly different from what the players have put forth. Like I mentioned earlier, I think they want to, they want a draft system that incorporates uh, not only win loss record, but also um, a team's market size, right? They want to reward smaller market teams for, for trying. I, I think the, the, the lottery is not a bad idea. Again, as we've been talking about, the, the MLB draft is so radically different from any other draft because those top picks guarantee you, you know, very little, right? Next to nothing. Um, Yes, a, f- a first rounder has a has a far higher chance. Just drop my mouse. A first rounder <laughs> has a far higher chance of reaching the major leagues than a thirtieth rounder, or not anymore, a twenty fifth rounder, or whatever. Um, but by and large, most most guys end up uh, kind of flaming out anyways, right? Or producing middling value. So. Would a would a lottery change things? Maybe I think you'd still probably see teams tanking just to to get there anyway, right? Just so that they can even be in the lottery conversation, which is why players are looking to add some of these incentives to small to middle revenue teams, small to middle payroll teams, and saying, hey, if you actually put your best shot out there. If you try and get above 500 by the end of the season, you'll get a pick. You'll be rewarded for that rather than trying to come in and lose 90, hundred games for the shot of, of getting the top pick of the draft. Also, we're kind of like uncovering a philosophical or a, a, um, a philosophical hypocrisy in how front offices and GMs talk about these things. Like they're saying we have to tank to get these top draft picks because they're so valuable. And then they're paying them the league minimum and then they're keeping them in the minors so that they can gain an extra year of their service time. And then they're not willing to negotiate about that league minimum and not willing to negotiate about when those people get to free agency. It's like, that is sort of like the talking out of both sides element that happens with the draft and with young players that the MLBPA is trying to 
solve for a little bit. If these draft picks are so valuable and these young guys are so valuable to you, why again are they not allowed to negotiate at at all for, you know, like these are the guys that won the Astros the World Series. These are the guys that won the Cubs the World Series because you had this young cheap core making under $10 million, you know, or under $30 million total, then you were able to sort of add around the edges. Um, and a lot of teams don't want to add around the edges, so they don't win World Series. Well, as the as the resident Mets fan here, I know you saw Steve Cohen's tweet from over the summer <laughs> when he was talking about signing uh, Kumar Rocker. And he yeah. basically said the quiet part out loud where he's like, draft picks are worth up to, I can't remember the number, three, four, five times as much as they're yeah. paid, which is, oh, that's a, that's a great point. I, I imagine Thanks that. for letting is, me know. <laughs> yeah, I imagine that tweet is going to be mentioned in whatever you know, CBA talks happen. That, that tweet was actually cited in the lawsuit from minor league baseball against major league baseball right now, or the minor league baseball players collectively uh, about how they're being uh, illegally underpaid for their, their service. So there you go. Thanks, yeah. Steve. I mean, there's a, there's a lot wrong, obviously with the way that the minor leagues operate financially and the draft itself operates financially right players high school players college players have zero leverage zero leverage in these right you're forced to negotiate with one team and if you don't want to sign with them that's fine but you have to effectively you know sit out until uh you have to you have to give up that uh whatever dollar figure that they're willing to give you four five six million dollars uh, if you want to meet with any other teams which at that point they're they're not really interested in paying you that anyway but the i mean the crux of it is that the mlbpa doesn't really have any incentive to change these specific uh parts of the system right now because the high school players college players minor league players are not a part of the union so that's why you're not going to see any radical changes to uh, minor league treatment, to the, to the draft that, that gives players any leverage, because frankly, they, they don't owe it to them at all, legally, or, or I mean, you could argue maybe morally, but it's, it's more likely than not that they'll actually sell out the interests of minor league players, of, uh, of draftees, in order to gain their own uh, benefits because that's their their job is to negotiate for the members of, of the union you guys um anyone who's listened to your pod they know you you're the unionized the miners guys um where do you you know i would say it's pretty clear you guys support like the union's efforts in this cba negotiation to to change how they're paid especially the younger players but how do you kind of um reckon with that like that relationship to minor leaguers and draftees, um, you know, first of all, all minor leaguers, especially now they're all employees of major league baseball, like straight up after the, uh, major league baseball took over the minor league operations. And those minor leaguers still aren't part of the players union. Like, how do you, how do you kind of see that? Like, yes, you're supporting um, the players efforts to the major league players efforts to be paid more fairly um, when they're young, but maybe some of those negotiations come, they, they're either ignoring the issues in the minors or come at the expense of them. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard. It, it's, you know, it's hard to expect the MOBPA to do more because legally they don't really cover the minor leaguers. Yeah. And that is such a big fight 
that if they were to try to wage it on behalf of minor leaguers in a roundabout way, they would lose. Like that, that, that would just extend the line too wide and you'd have big gaps for MLB to win on a lot of other stuff. And ultimately it probably wouldn't help the minor leaguers that much. The minor league players need their own union or they need to be added into the major league baseball players association. There's no way for the MLBPA to help them legally in the CBA without recognition of the minor leaguers within the unit, within the bargaining unit, within the union itself, because at the beginning of every collective bargaining agreement, there is a recognition and scope clause, which says this is the people who are covered by this CBA. And it is only the members of the MLB Players Association. And the owners have only agreed to allow major leaguers on the 40-man roster to be in the union. It would be a massive, massive, massive fight, like a year-long knockdown, drag-out, strike fight for MLB to get the minor leaguers in the union. Or the minor leaguers would form their own union and they would then bargain against MLB separately. And the two unions could interact and they could help each other and they could say, Hey, what are you thinking about this? And Hey, what are you thinking about that? And that would just be like, like for you know, worker solidarity, which happens among unions all the time. Like the writer's guild helps the director's guild and the, you know, auto workers help the retail workers and not, that kind of thing happens all the time in industries that have separate unions within them. But it would be a, it's a very uphill battle for the minor leaguers to form their own union because guys are all spread out everywhere. They're not in the same, um, they're not in the same city for very long. They're not even in the same level for very long. And it takes a lot of organization and uncomfortable conversations to actually form a union when you're like 20 and you just got out of high school and you're trying to hit better than 200 in double a. So, um, you know, it's it's really unfortunate, but it is because of the economic structure that the owners have set up. They've, they've set up the minor leagues to be this way, and they choose to pay them less than minimum wage in, in a lot of cases. And they they choose, pre, before this year, they chose not to provide them housing. They they Everything that is not being provided to them is a business choice by Major League Baseball clubs. And it's not actually an economic reality that owners are facing. These are billion dollar. This is a billion dollar antitrust exempt industry that could definitely improve those conditions, but they just, they just choose not to. And so then the onus just falls on no one to fix it because the MLBPA can't fix it. The MLB is choosing not to fix it. And then you have, you know, you have people coming in here. You have places like advocates for minor leaguers, places like more than baseball who are picking up the slack from the work uh, the picking up the slack of the work that the MLB has left, but it's not, it's always going to be patchwork until the actual business is choosing to fix it themselves. Like in the cases of housing or forced to fix it through collective bargaining. You best believe owners are not just going to offer unionization to minor leaguers. Oh, the conditions are bad. You should have said something. Let's, on the, well, on the contrary, they lobby Congress to prevent things like this from happening. Yeah. You know, they lot the Save America's Pastime Act is MLB lobbying actual United States Congress to exempt minor leaguers from minimum wage laws. Like that, let that sink in and then think about how MLB approaches labor negotiations, even amongst the MLBPA, which has a significantly more cultural capital and power and financial might than the minor leaguers do. I want to ask too about the model of free agency itself. Uh, what do you guys think is going to change as far as, you know, the signing periods and deadlines and things like that and 
whether that actual structure, as far as the timeline goes, do you think is going to be part of the CBA negotiations? And when you think about, you know, I guess there was like, there was a, a sort of like makeshift deadline this year with all the guys signing in the days, you know, leading up to the first. And I guess at least the guys at the top made a bunch of money because of it partially. Um, but then you go to like 2019, you have Harper and Machado waiting until February to sign. And, you know, maybe that's why or that, that can obviously cause, you know, total value to drop because the market gets all dry. So what, what do you think about just the model of free agency itself from off season to off season and how that's going to play into all this stuff? Quick, quickly here, you guys on your pod, you, um, you mentioned how you think major league baseball can be a bit more like the NBA and you think of NBA's free agency. Yeah. Um, there are like a ton of moves right away all at the same time. And it creates a lot of excitement. Um, do you think a deadline could do something like that for baseball and then how, uh, like what are some of the negative implications that could cause too? I thought it was, this is, this is, Half on topic, um, we saw Rob Manfred come out yesterday and, and talk about the union's proposals for arbitration, free agency, and saying, you know, we, we see the most negative fan reaction when a player leaves in free agency, which was remarkable to me because it's not true. Yeah. Like, it's not exciting. That's... It's, free agency is a really enjoying process. And I don't think any fan really begrudges a player for leaving free in free agency. They begrudge it. They begrudge it when a team trades a player and says, we have no willingness to pay them or a team says, yeah, we're not going to match that offer. But, you know, uh, Ty, you mentioned the the NBA, right? The NBA is dominates their off season because of free agency. This league. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Woj bomb. The, the, the NFL uh, dominates their offseason because of the draft, right? So you can actually make um, these kind of, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? You can make, um, you can make headlines, mar- marquee yeah. events yeah. out of uh, transaction periods like this and i i don't know mob hasn't exactly chosen to to follow that model and has really almost discouraged it um i think in part because it's hard to engage fans in that um i think i so here i actually have some qualms with this though because i think that one of the reasons that nba can happen so fast like if you compress it into a week for mlb agents players teams are gonna be pissed because the -hmm. structures of these deals are so much different the nba you know LeBron James is signing the five-year, two hundred and forty million dollars max, or whatever the number is at this point in the you know revenue sharing of how that league operates. That's it. That's the max. There is a max contract. But like Wander Franco's deal is really weird. It's like twelve. It's like eleven years. Or he's all these like escalators, like all these different things that impact how he's going to make it. Like that stuff takes more time to negotiate over. Do I think that MLB could benefit from compressing that into like a two-week or a three-week period? Definitely. And I think that they should. I don't think that would really hurt either side. Um, I'm sure that Scott Boris would whine about it because he likes to drag his negotiations out to the 11th hour as long as possible. But yeah, Nathan, I think you're right. I mean, I think that there is a lot of excitement. And, and like Alex said, I think that you can make marquee events out of these things. But I had a lot of fun watching, particularly the Mets, sign all of these good players in a short amount of time. It was very, it was very enthralling. Yeah, I think 
it definitely it definitely does make excitement um like this these past few days definitely an example but even when the negotiations for like Harper and Machado did drag out uh those last couple weeks where you know in a short span the Phillies got Real Muto and Harper uh fans were really excited about that and I think having like a set period where you know it's going to happen would probably probably create some excitement and if it's earlier than February I think I think fans would be more excited for like the upcoming season when they know where some of the players are going to be I would think yeah well and the longer free agency drags out the the more leverage that that middle class kind of loses right because they're anxious to sign before spring spring training before the season actually starts, they, you know, the closer you get to February to March, players are going to start to give a little bit because they'd rather be on a team uh, when March for when April 1st rolls around than than not. All right. La- last thing I have for you guys. Um, CBA negotiations going on. We're in a lockout. Why should fans care about what actually goes on and what the actual agreement is rather than just getting this thing over with as quickly as possible. So I think competition is a really big element of that. I think if you want your team to compete, if you want a better product to watch year in and year out, I think what the MLBPA is talking about is very convincing. They want teams to try harder, which I think benefits fans, obviously. Um, You know, something like expanded playoffs, like, that could make competition worse or it could make competition better. Well, we could see how that plays out, but those terms actually matter as to how teams operate, whether they keep that free agent around, whether they go get Real Muto and Harper or whether they just punt and kick it down the road till next season. So that's the first thing. The other thing is like, you know, I see a lot of people saying, let's just get this done. It's so hard to follow. Um, it's hard to care about it. When I see Max Scherzer signed for 43 million average annual value, even though barely anybody gets that actual type of contract, like we talked about, but, it's it's a really binary industry here. Either the players get it or the owners get it. You're not going to get it as a fan. It's not your money. You're not entitled to it. They're not going to lower ticket prices because payroll is lower. There have been numerous studies showing that like prices of MLB TV, prices of tickets, prices of concessions, it doesn't really matter. Like The team is just going to change it based on what they think that you will pay. So either the players, the reason that you actually like baseball, win and they get more of that money or the owners do. And if you don't really care, if you're totally ambivalent towards that, then we'll probably never change your mind. But if you do care about the long-term health of it, I think that I personally hope that the owners don't continue to take such a hawkish view on the health of the sport when it comes to labor relations, because I, the, the MLB players association is the reason that the players are able to operate the way that they do like the the reason that players have gotten so good the reason that competition has gotten so much better is because they're so well compensated for what they do and so that they can focus so well they can focus so much on becoming the absolute best at what they do in the entire world you know if you have a weak labor force then and if they were not making what they're making in terms of like a share of the pie then they might go to other leagues around the rest of the world they might get attracted away like the WNBA so they're it's just a matter of whether you whether you care which side gets the money, which I personally do. Alex, did I, did I miss anything? I just want my team to try. Spend <laughs> money and try to win. Because at the end of the day, that's what it's about, right? And more and more teams 
are showing that they're less interested in that because you don't necessarily get an outsized amount of money from winning or from being a good team. You're going to get money regardless, right? We talked about revenue sharing. You're going <laughs> to, you'll be fine if you run out of 60, 70, $80 million payroll. So I'd love to just see a league where, where all the teams are actually trying to put a decent product on the field and the place that that starts, the way you make that happen is through this CBA. All right. I think that'll do it for our lockout CBA discussions. Nathan, I think that pretty much hit all the topics we needed to, to give our listeners a little bit of an overview. Would you say we touched all the, all the basics? Definitely. I'd say I, I learned quite a bit myself. Those guys are experts. Uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how this all unfolds. Uh, you know, it, it, it'll be a, a turbulent couple months, I'm sure, but yeah, it was fun. All right. Bobby and Alex, this is Bobby Wagner, Alex Baisley from Tipping Pitches. Thank you guys for coming on. Thanks, Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. All right. You can follow them at tipping underscore pitches on Twitter. Subscribe to their podcast for more discussions like this and a lot more. Definitely subscribe to Tipping Pitches. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Hope you learned something about the CBA negotiations. We'll talk to you next time.